welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I joined here with my guest, uh, Benjamin Gross, the co-founder and CEO of Minty Living. Benjamin, thanks for joining. It's my pleasure, Jamie. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to connect and, and thank you so much for, for having me on the, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, so we're both here in Atlanta today. It's a wonderfully muggy, hot summer day in Atlanta. I know your office is is located not too far from where I'm at today, but it's it's great for us to connect and actually record one of our conversations because I know, and you're one of my favorite people to talk to in the industry, um, a true data nerd at heart, I, I feel like. <laughs> and hopefully more than a few people will enjoy the conversation that that we're going to have today. Thank you, Jamie. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to be here. And for any of you thinking of visiting Atlanta... It's not that hot and that muggy. It's it's actually been pretty beautiful. I've been surprised how long how how long the summer has stayed Northern California esque, where it was like cool in the mornings. And you're right, like two weeks ago, it hit us across the face. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I love this city, and and uh, it's great getting to be here. Said as a true hospitality professional, trying to attract people to the Atlanta area. Precisely. No, not <laughs> I. Never. What are you talking? <laughs> so. Maybe you can uh, give our listeners just a, a brief overview of of Minty Living, your company, and why you started it. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, it was certainly something that I, I didn't plan on doing. Uh, so my background is very much not in hospitality at all. My passion was working in um, quantitative trading, working in <clears throat> complex systems, and building software and, and really working in the investment technology world. Uh, I went back and got my master's in mathematical finance in 2010 and then moved to New York. And when I was working in quantitative trading, uh, my wife, much better half and, and co-founder, went and got her master's of interior architecture from Pratt. And we essentially started doing remote real estate development. And when I say we, I'm being hyperbolic. It was all her. <laughs> she did everything. Um, I would just kind of do the the cash flow planning and the budget forecasting and things like that. And she would fly down to Atlanta, you know, once every two months and and actually manage these projects. And so we would acquire, renovate, furnish, and then sell investment properties to investors. And every time we sold an investment property, somebody would say, look, I don't know if the secret sauce is this incredible visual aesthetic that you've imbued into this property or something that you're doing behind the scenes. So would you manage it for us? Mm -hmm. And um, the answer was always no. <laughs> Why would we do property management? And uh, the, you know, the, the old adage, the third time somebody calls you a horse, you go out and you buy yourself a saddle. And I, you know, we started looking at it and there, there's really incredible symbioses between real estate development and property management. One is capitally constrained. One is really operationally constrained. One is very much about consistent cash flows. One is highly inconsistent cash flows. You're, you know, it's the pig in a python uh, challenge of real estate development. And of course, there's incredible resource sharing. So you can share these vendors and these resources. And we had uh, had our second child um, living in Brooklyn. And, um, <clears throat> you know, what better way to to flex your relationship and, and um, 
you know, try to uh, continue to see, you know, what you guys can do as, as partners and uh, become co-founders. And that was exactly what we did. So we came and started Minty Living April 1st of, of 2020. We had uh, five units under management. We owned all five of them and we're now cresting about 180 units and we still own five of them. So um, it's, it's been an incredible, uh, incredible opportunity to really get to know an industry, of course, that is incredibly collegial um, you know, connecting with you, connecting with people in the industry, you know, Mateo Bradford, Simon Lehman, uh, David from uh, Rent Responsibly, uh, mm-hmm. Annie Holcomb, I, you know, <laughs> Heather, Heather Richer from Richer Logic. I, the, yep. the list goes on about just what an incredibly warm industry it is and uh, happy to be a part of it. So start with a question. What, why Atlanta? Well, uh, I, I lovingly call this our, my Atlanta 3.0. So I actually did undergrad here. I went to Emory University and I started in 1999. I'm dating myself now. And uh, of course, graduated college in 2002 and then uh, went into the world of financial advisory. I was actually a financial advisor for the Equitable here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. AXA advisors acquired them. And I met my now wife and, you know, then fiance. And, and that was really Atlanta 2.0. So we lived here in Atlanta from 2003 until 2009. That's when we left to go to Pittsburgh for me to pursue my master's degree. So we, you know, had a, a wonderful stint here. We loved Atlanta. We still do. And, and so when we had moved to Pittsburgh and then New York, the remote real estate development was happening entirely in Atlanta because we knew the city so well. And it's, it's just uh, such an incredible city. Yeah. So as you think about and minty living today and, and operating in the city of Atlanta, what, what's been the and biggest benefits? What's been the biggest challenges of and the city and operating during COVID? And how did you guys perform? Like, how, how's it been since you guys launched? Fascinating questions. Um, I could <laughs> spend all day on them. Well, 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 really, you know, there's, there is, unfortunately, I think, few urban operators that have demonstrated both proper profitability and sustainability. Mm-hmm. We've seen many, many urban operators go out of business. It's a lot easier if I have a home that is renting for $1,500 a night, there's a lot more margin for me to pay workers, for me to figure out how to deal with the operations and logistics than, you know, if I'm renting a unit for $3,000 a month for it. Yep. And so that really is probably more of a, an urban versus vacation rental centric conundrum that, you know, it, it, and again, it depends on the, the data that you draw, but if you take the 25,000 vacation rental management companies across the United States and you draw one of them from that random population, you know, there's a 70% chance that they manage less than 30 units. And so what was really interesting for me was when we first hit that point of 30 units, I of course thought I had given up my, my life of complex systems and technology development. And here I was moving (laughs) to Atlanta for completely different reasons. And then of course we hit this 30 unit, you know, asymptotic um, increase in, in complexity. And, 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 hit me, wow, this is 
a complex system of massive proportions because of the number of verticals that you deal with, the technology um, inherently in this industry, people sell to the, oh, I've got 30 units under management. They're not selling to the person who has 200 units under management. And so in general, the technology doesn't integrate very well. It's meant for kind of onesie, twosie management. It's not meant for scaling very well. And so that really, for me, was the first of many uh, walls <laughs> that we hit around um, how to scale this company. And it, it really was, um, I had to take a step back and, and really map out the entire you know, topology of, of technology in the space. And that's when it, it became clear to me, number one, uh, we could not build a panacea. So mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, the, the most generously funded technology startups in the, in the hospitality tech space, I mean, take Guesty, for example, you know, they've raised $250 million over the last decade, let's call it. And so you can take these companies that have raised substantial amounts of capital um, and built technology and look at what the result has been. And the result has been a clear demonstration that building a panacea is, is really untenable. And, yep. and I, I think there are other clear examples. I mean, Google was, was trying to build email plus task management, right? Plus, and, and, and I personally would argue that Google is probably the soft, the best software developer on the face of the planet. Like nobody develops software like Google at the same time. Nobody goes out and takes projects in the backyard and shoots them in the head as frequently as Google, which is deeply frustrating, but you know, their entire integration of task management with email, with docs was abysmal up until call it 10 months ago. And it's like, well, guys, we now have other productivity tools. Yeah, that ship has sailed. But if, if Google can't build a panacea, it's pretty safe to say that nobody can. Can you give us an example of something that you were a, a problem that you were trying to solve that you just like couldn't figure out with the existing technology tool sets? I can I can give you many. Um, <laughs> so so um, one is the process of onboarding. Mm -hmm. the, the process of onboarding a property is a very nuanced, specific, and rigorous sequence of events that need to occur from you know when the contract is signed to scheduling vendors and 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 maintenance to come in and make sure that everything is functioning properly properly to scheduling, styling, and staging to make sure that all of the art and the decor and the fixtures are, are, are perfectly done to quality assurance coming in and making sure that the olive oil and the, um, the, the knives, the, the knife block is there. And, and so that process of property onboarding really doesn't exist in, in, in the world of uh, vacation rental management. It's, it's, we have unfortunately, um, for property managers, we oftentimes are a hodgepodge of the inventory that kind of comes our way. And that's, of course, one of the things Minty Living really set out to, to do very differently. And so we had to build this entire onboarding ramp that we could templatize. And so uh, that, for me, was one of the clear indications of we, we've got to build this in-house. And of course, um, you know, we had the technology budget of you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks a year, not a couple hundred million. And so we had to be 
extremely disciplined in the way that we went about choosing um, the technology. And so really the, the insight was that we could take one of these extremely flexible and extensible applications. Productivity tools have really kind of set the stage around this. First, there was Trello and then Notion came into the market and then you know, ClickUp, which is the one that, that, that we chose. Uh, but then we started doing stuff with ClickUp where they were like, what are you doing? We actually had the guy below the CEO reach out to us and say, what are you doing with our software? And I walked him through what we had built and they were just gobsmacked. They were like, you guys are using ClickUp like the people at ClickUp. And I was like, oh, well, I, I guess that's a, a compliment. So, um, so it, it was really kind of that, that little component, right? So for example, the nuance of the ability to take and, and identify the appropriate vendor to do a job, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, great. Somebody called last night in the freezer hadn't shut in the you know ice bin, had frozen over. Okay, we have four maintenance technicians on staff. That day, I need to now, and when I say I, I'm acting as a guest experience operator, but I mm-hmm. as a guest experience operator need to be able to identify the appropriate technician for that job. Well, I need to be able to create a ranking system to identify the skill sets of those individuals and then assign the right person. It's entirely bespoke inside of our system, right? We had mm-hmm. to build that ourselves. Nothing really exists that, that lets you do that. So again and again, right? That was, we, we, we came into that again and again. So no surprise then that you guys were, were nominated for Urban Property Manager of the Year for the Shorties. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you. But And what do you see is next for Minty Living? Is it further optimizing what you're doing within Atlanta? Is it growing to additional markets? Is it growing to additional areas within the city? Like, and are you happy at 180 units? Are you guys going to pause here? Like, what does the expansionary plan look like? Uh, um, we do uh, vacation rentals much like I ski, which is full send. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um I think it's interesting. I think we're at a very interesting time in the world of, of vacation rentals. So if you were talking to me in February of this year, I would have told you, yep, we're actually about to do a capital raise and we're heading to three more cities in the next two years. And that was absolutely the thinking around how we were going to go about our expansion plans. I think we saw private markets and public markets fundamentally respond differently to uh, the inflationary concerns, to some of the different economic components. And, and you know, we, we really saw a private valuation collapse that wasn't really reflected in public markets, which is interesting because usually it's, of course, the converse, where public right. markets you know, have this massive response to price and some kind of exogenous events. And it was actually the, the opposite. So we went to venture markets really with what we felt like was, man, you, you can't bake a model any better, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've absolutely knocked the cover off the ball. We have, you know, the highest level of guest experience reviews. We've got 4.9 Google stars on our, you know, 200 reviews that we've got. We've got a net promoter score of our guests of, you know, call it uh, 77, I think is kind of where we're currently hovering. You have a, a, a rev par that is 20% over market comps. 
Um, you have this visual aesthetic that really people continue to come back to. And you have this incredible blend of extended stay market, short-term rentals, kind of traditional Airbnb, as well as location work, right? People coming in and doing branding photo shoots. And when you couple those three unique demand sources, again, the operational complexity is substantial, but you can generate really unparalleled levels of yield. And so we went to venture markets with what we felt like was a pretty compelling narrative to, to go out and, and raise the capital for cities two, three, and four. And really what we found was a, a level of, I don't want to say distaste, but I kind of want to say distaste. It really is. I would say that the venture world has, for a number of reasons we can, of course, talk about, but the, the venture world really has developed a distaste for anybody that kind of looks and feels like um, what they believe to be previous investments that were made in the space that didn't go well, which, which is unfortunate because I think there are a lot of critical failures that you can point to. I mean, one being unit density. Right. I mean, the whole pitch was to say, look, Minty Living has achieved critical unit density. And in every city that we go to, we will achieve critical unit density. And what we will provide is really a coherent platform for brand distribution and profitability. Because now you have four city centers that each one is kicking out, you know, 20 to 25% operating margin. And you really couldn't get that change of view, right? People had kind of gone swimming and the water was too cold and, and you're like, <laughs> no, 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 but we've heated the pool and it's a really simple thing. And now the pool is warm and they're like, yeah, the pool's too cold. So, you know, those really were the challenges. So it, it has very much been a reshaping of our view about how we go about scaling going forward. So we'll continue to grow in in the traditional way that we have. We're generally onboarding between you know three to five units per month. Again, using that same consistent pipeline of staging and styling and design and installation. And uh, then from there, you know, we'll we'll see uh, what other mechanisms might be available. You know, th there's been a, a huge move towards profitability. That's kind of the second piece, right? It was. In the 1.0, it was like, look, this is about scale. If you demonstrate scale and how you're different, then you know, go to do markets two, three, and four. And of course, you know, scale must be at the cost of profitability, right? By definition, you know, I think I think it was Yanis Varoufakis, the 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 economist from Greece, who just beautifully coined it, where by definition, when you raise capital, you're taking future earnings. And you're bringing them into the present to fund your growth. And, and so by definition, if you're trying to grow, if you're trying to scale, profitability is going to be sacrificed to do that. So, so it really has been about a retooling towards profitability and uh, doubling down on Atlanta and, and growing our portfolio here. So maybe we could double click a little bit about, and you, you mentioned your sort of three tiers of demand that you and go after. And how have you seen that evolve in terms of the type of guests that you're going after and, and how that's played out over the past three years that you've been operating? Yeah, it's, it's great question. You know, we, we certainly, I think in, in, in many instances, you 
find yourself in, in a certain situation where it's right time, right place. And then you figure <laughs> out how to optimize yep. man getting here, April 1st of 2020 with California shutting down and New York shutting down and Atlanta becoming the hub for film and production mm -hmm. was literally right time, right place. I mean, we, we just, we showed up and we happened to be in the right time at the right place. And then we really began focusing on this extended stay portion. And there are really a number of reasons to look at it, but it, you know, blue ground, I think really that was their focus and they really focused on the corporate side mm -hmm. and, um, had tremendous success with that. And, and, um, the film and production industry, of course, is a great adjacency because now you have these incredibly large and profitable technology companies like Amazon, like Apple, uh, and, and like Netflix. And so that gives you this incredible perspective to say, wow, well, if I really wanted to try to align myself with an extended stay cohort, then these are great, great partners in doing that. And so that really has been um, a, a wonderful process. Uh, it's, it's a portion of why we have such a high direct booking rate. So 70% of our nights that we book are direct bookings and they're specifically through these pipelines that we have built into the film and production industry here in Atlanta. And of course, you know, again, one of the pitches from the capital raise standpoint is that those pipes are transferable mm -hmm. to other film and production hubs uh, around the globe, but they are, um, there's, there's great benefit to them. And, and I kind of use a brick and mortar analogy where really those extended stays are like the bricks, right? They're kind of the, the big medium term um, booking. And then you try to fill in around those bricks with short-term rental, because on average, the gap between the ability to place one extended stay and one after it tends to be somewhere in the ballpark of 30 to 45 days. And and when you say extended stay, what 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 length of stays are you talking about here? I'm calling it 31 and more. Okay, but less than a year lease. We have of our extended stay pool a year long. More than a year has happened twice. Okay, it's very very rare. Generally speaking, we have found if somebody's staying for more than a year, they they want a white box and they want to furnish it themselves. But it's happened a couple of times. Uh, mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. On average, our extended stays, the average, I, I gave you the minimum, which is 31, 31 days, the the average duration, and of course, it's time varying, right? So it depends on which slice of time you look at, but usually our extended stays are between 50 to 70 days. Okay. And then you said filling in the gaps in between What's your pipeline for filling in those gaps? Like, is it purely going on the OTAs? Is it using some other sources? Like, how are, how are you going about filling in the rest of the time? It's a great question. And it, it really harkens back to what we were speaking about, speaking about the, the technology piece. And, and that really is the current modality of creating direct booking websites. And of course, we're completely redoing this, right? So we're building a direct booking website that we're actually releasing in the next two weeks that is built entirely from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And it's important that if you're really trying to build measurable funnels and pipelines that, that you have that, right? You need to be able to measure and monitor 
the actions that users are taking and funnel probability successes and making sure that you know you're able to a b test rapidly and quickly and unfortunately with the current setup of oh create a direct booking site with the click of a button right all of that isn't there you you really don't have any of that and so up until this point we really have focused on uh you're exactly right kind of the the OTAs um you know Airbnb of course being the big one but Marriott Homes and Villas uh approached us probably want to say 8 months ago um <laughs> when they found our portfolio and and kind of you know connected with us and it just made a ton of sense to 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 bring them on board and they then became our our very quickly uh number 2 source of that medium term booking. So, you know, and and of course it's been great to see booking.com make the changes that they needed to make. I think they've they've made some some really wonderful um, modifications to the the way that they're going about screening individuals. Of course, now they want to be the merchant of record, which I think also is a is 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 a valuable uh, change and so they're now coming into the market, which I think is wonderful. It it opens up another channel around the international market, which of course you know, Atlanta was the most heavily traveled airport in the world, I think up until 2021 or something like that. And I think, I think it was Shanghai that, that passed it, but it's, it's a, it's a global city. And so um, tapping into those channels is great, but up until this point, you know, building these direct pipelines to our website is very challenging. It's very, very hard because you don't have the measurability. And so, um, up until this point, you're right. Kind of that mortar piece has very much been through traditional OTAs. And knowing that you're a system guy and a data guy, I got to think the whole dynamic about how you price midterm extended stays for short-term stays and sort of maximizing revenue is another interesting challenge. Can you can you talk about how you think about managing maybe the slightly lower rates that you get through midterm rentals that potentially higher rates, the and profitability of both types of business and, and how you optimize for both? Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you're not suggesting that I built a multi-factor model to price our extended stay <laughs> for each property at any given point in time, because that would be crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, Jamie, because I think, you know, you're, you're touching on some aspects to the industry and where it currently is that become very difficult to understand and evaluate. For example, uh, you did a great piece on the asymmetric impact of urban versus vacation rental markets with kind of the, the current pricing uh, environment. And of course, anytime you deal with different urban environments, you now have another level of, of heterogeneity and nuance. And, and so really what's interesting is that in my mind, your profitability is actually changing pretty consistently as well. So there's kind of this element of dynamic profitability that we actually don't model into the business that is inherently happening because you have fixed costs. If you are a vacation rental manager at scale, you have fixed costs and you are selling a variable product. And so by definition, if I'm selling a product that is variable and I have costs that are fixed, I have a variable, I have, I have variable margins by, by definition. And so we have taken elements. So for example, to exactly to your point, up until 
three months ago, the mortar in the brick and mortar analogy was always a higher ADR than the extended stay. And so we had to price in a way that took into account, well, there is less work and we have kind of our different LTV for different channels. And, you know, some of them are crazy factors that you have to include. In one of our channels, we actually have an extortion factor because people come in and they start snapping photos. And they're like, I want a discount for that. And then I want a discount for that. And so we actually include an extortion factor in one of our channels to do an LTV calculation, which is insane. <laughs> right? This is insane. You have, you have a factor called extortion factor in your model? Yes, we do. But really over the last three months, what we have seen is the STR ADR and rev, right? I mean, because by definition, we've seen this declining in occupancy as well. Now suddenly, well, extended stay actually isn't a lower ADR than, 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 than the STR. And so now it's the incremental value. So now you, you, you quantify, okay, what is the utility of the STR? Well, mm -hmm. number one, it's a stopgap. It, it, it creates consistent income over the, over the duration of the period. That's, of course, always the risk of short-term rentals is, well, you know, I've got this inconsistent cash flow and I have this consistent cost in this asset that I need to maximize the utility of. And so really, STR served to, I'll take on that unknown, that, that variability of payment, that inconsistency of unknown cash flow but I'll get a higher ADR. And so my expected return, you know, for that time period, hopefully should be about the same. And now we've seen these, this extended stay market actually have higher ADRs than the, than, than the STR market. And it's, it's really kind of turned the whole pricing piece upside down because well, now it's actually less work and it's full occupancy or there's, there's no vacancy involved. And on top of that, you know, you, you've got higher ADR. So it, it's fascinating to really watch the ebb and flow of these different markets and their pricing. So is that, and you guys are going all in on, sounds like on midterm stays as a, and, and trying to optimize as most for that. So are you really holding back calendars so you don't get short-term rentals far on advance? And I'm trying to get those longer-term rentals as hold out that month as long as possible. Yeah, well, it's 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 a great question, and again, we get into kind of these these idiosyncratic elements of the specific market that we're talking about. So the writers' strike mm -hmm. here in Atlanta has just been catastrophic to film and production. Um, we saw the writers' strike then be coupled with uh, the Directors Guild, but then they negotiated their contract, and now the Screen Actors Guild their contract is coming up for negotiation. So it's, it has been a, a very unfortunate timing of, of these kind of, you know, outside market factors where we've seen this softening in the STR market. And at the same time, the, 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 the writers guild went on strike and film and production has shut down. So what we traditionally will do is exactly what you're talking about, where we don't open up the calendar more than 30 days in advance because mm -hmm. It's imperative that we're able to take that extended stay booking, not get dinged for canceling a reservation, et cetera, right? You're constantly um, navigating this, you know, trying to create levels of status on these OTAs and maintain good standing while at the same time, 
making sure there's adequate room for the extended stays. So ironically, we've opened up our length of booking, our, our, the, the window for which we'll, we'll book with the end in sight of when we believe the writer strike is going to end. So uh, we're really trying to, so ironically, we've done the opposite of what you might expect based on what I just said. <laughs> which we have opened up the calendar further in advance, but what we are also doing is kind of looking at that D-Day, if you will, that we, we think uh, the writer's strike is probably going to end and, and then from there move back and to your point exactly, potentially even shorten our booking window because until we start to see some strength coming back into the short-term rental market, the the extended stay is just better all around. So that, that that's some real dynamic forecasting you got going on there. <laughs> it's it's um it's it's quite. I mean, well, it, it, it's that, and 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 now we're actually implementing distributions of daily bookings on the STR channel. So now we're actually changing the information on the listing on the days in which bookings historically have occurred. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of a whole separate conversation about, you know, you're, you're essentially trying to become, you know, highly ranked on Google search, mm -hmm. um, except in, in OTA world. And how do you go about doing that? And, and of course there's a limited number of tools to do something like that. And, it's not like you have to do it on one platform. You have to do it on 10. And so it's it's incredibly challenging, not just to do, but then how do you measure it, et cetera. But we go very far out. So looking very much into the future and looking at these longer term revenue um, impacts. And then you know certainly very much to the short term and saying, okay, great. What days of the week are people most likely to book on? And then given our booking rate conditionally, right? So it's very much a, a Bayesian uh, equation where you're saying, given the fact that our bookings have done this on Monday and Tuesday, what does that then mean for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? So harking back to something you you mentioned when we were, we were first talking, where that you're being really methodical about how you onboarded properties, how you brought on owners. Yeah. I've heard you talk about your systems, your process. If I was had an extra home in Atlanta, I'm I'd <laughs> I'd want you to be managing it. I'd want you to be uh, running running that. So, well, what is that process for you of of deciding what type of homes you actually want to bring into your system? That sort of is it a measure of expected profitability? Is it I mean that it's in the right neighborhood, right home type? Like what what are those filters? What is that criteria that you're looking at? on how you onboard properties? Yeah, that's a great question. So like, I feel like um, most of, of what I've done at Minty Living has been trying to build scalability around the incredible insight and intuition of my much better half. <laughs> so when we first started, it, it was it was incredible. We would walk through units and, and Sidra, I mean, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna gush for a second. You just gotta get, you gotta give me a minute. But I mean, it's, it's uncanny. It's, you've never seen anything like it. She can walk a property, walk through a property, you know, maybe somebody was looking to sell it. And so she did a tour of the property. And then a year and a half later, two years later, all of a sudden an owner comes in the door and says, Hey, I've got this property. And they tell us the address and Sidra's like, wait, is it, is it the one that's located next to this house on the corner there? And they're like, yeah, that is the one. And she's like, Oh, 
you know, next to the staircase, there's this walk-in closet that if you took out the wall, you could make an office. And I, I mean, it's uh, like her capacity to remember spatial. It, it's, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And so I, I, I am being a little bit joking, but not much. It really was about in the very beginning, it was about letting Sidra just run with properties that she liked. It, that's how it started. I mean, it literally started by identifying and trusting her intuition around it. It's, it's just uncanny. Then over time, we were able to put formulas around it. Then over time, we were able to clearly identify what was going on. So one of the core elements of our decision criteria is this element of walkability. Because so many people in this extended stay are coming from California, they're coming from New York, they don't want to go to a, you know, a, a shopping center Mecca, right? They, they want to feel like there are these elements of neighborhood that they're accustomed to. And at the end of the day, Atlanta's got that, which is really exciting. And so this, we actually put, it's going to be on our new website, You'll notice this. We use the when I we I'm saying we. It's all Sid. Sidra says every one of our properties is within walking distance to an independent coffee shop, and and ironically, that element of walkability goes really, really uh, go, goes a tremendous way with with people that are coming out of state and they want to know where they're going to stay. And this element of walkability is is huge. It's so important. The second piece is certainly about, and, and it's very much adjacent to this idea of walkability, is about these incredible neighborhoods of Atlanta. So, you know, Cabbage Town, Jamie, where you are, Reynolds Town, Inman Park, Midtown, West Midtown is getting there. But, you know, these incredible neighborhoods of Atlanta have so much character. And that, in our minds, is uh, one of the reasons people come to stay with Minty Living you know that you're going to get a, a, a space that is number one, exquisitely designed, right? So every property that comes in the door, it happens occasionally. It's maybe it's 10% of the properties, but somebody will say, my property doesn't need anything. It's ready to be onboarded. And the answer to that 90% of the time is, yeah, it actually does need something. And unfortunately, we're not going to put something in the portfolio unless it meets this visual aesthetic standard, which by the way, and again, this is, you know, right place, right time, or, you know, accidentally, you know, closing your eyes and hitting the cover off the ball. We didn't realize that that was going to be one of the main drivers for these alternative revenue sources. So people come to do photo shoots in our properties because of the design, right? Because of the incredible visual aesthetic. So in the beginning, of course, you know, especially people from finance, I don't want to spend money on design. You know, design is like a bad word. And I think what we've seen specifically when we look at our performance, you know, here in Atlanta in these difficult times, we have incredibly outperformed the market. Um, it's, it's still been, I mean, last year, this time we had an 85% occupancy and now we're at 70%. So it's not that it hasn't hit us. It has, but you know, the market's at 50 you know, so um, it, it, it really just continues to, to benefit the revenue potential of the unit. So uh, it has to do with those things, right? It's this element of walkability, 
It's in the neighborhoods that we know. And that, of course, they were able to operationally resolve because the operational complexities are, are just massive. Uh, so we've got to you know, have it in the, the areas that we know. And the owner's got to be willing to acknowledge, I don't care if you're a designer. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you know w- w- it's a body of work that is nearly 200 units that you know, people have a very devoted feeling about wanting to stay at. And, and if you're not willing to make that in uh, part of the ante, then we can't really have a conversation about it. So um, I think, you know, those are, are three of the big criteria. So my big takeaway is I've got the right neighborhood, but in, unless I'm willing to spend a lot of money to, or a decent amount of money to make my property up to your standards, like you're probably not going to onboard it. Well, and, and here's the thing that I would say is actually pretty interesting. And, and this certainly does go towards the, the, the needle changing from scale to profitability. So it has evolved. But what I will say is because of the volume that we do, mm-hmm. you get incredible, incredible discounts. And we don't charge the margin markups that traditional designers charge because we're expecting to make, you know, the, the pitch to, has to been make we make on, money yeah. when you make money. Yeah. And so ironically, we've had owners come in and say, you know, the, the average, let's call it 20K for a bedroom, right? You know, we'll go to an owner and say, okay, you know, we've spec the property, put together the full FF and E and, you know, maybe this, you know, one bedroom, one bath shook out at 20K and it was a white box. And they've come back to us and said, I tried to do this cheaper and I can't come close to your price. And we're like, yeah, we know. So, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, if you were looking to get a place designed, then you would be paying substantially more, you know, 30 to 40% more than if Minty Living did it. So we've actually, you know, we need to put termination fees because (laughs) somebody, well, because somebody could arb us, right? They could, they could arbitrage us and say, great, wonderful, Minty Living. Yep. Here you go. Here's the cost of doing this at, you know, a 30% discount to what I'm going to pay for market and yeah. buy, you know, and then terminate the contract. So just have you be uh, our full-time designer. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're coming up on time. We're already a bit over, over time, but I wanted to leave you with um, an opportunity to, and just share your thoughts on really in whatever direction you want to go, but just broadly on, on where you think the industry is going. And maybe if you have any ask of, of listeners on, and if they're operating in the industry, what you'd like to see broadly, but what do you see happening over the next few years? How do you see it evolving? Yeah, it's, um, uh, do we have another hour? <laughs> um, uh, no, the, it's look, the, the, the best hits. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's look, it, it's a great question. And, and, and candidly, Jamie, I, I almost want you to answer it. Uh, but I, I can certainly, you know, provide what, what I'm seeing you know, and, 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 and where I think, um, things are going. And, and, you know, we, we talked about the, the complexity of this business and with the increase in supply very understandably, right. We, we essentially saw, you know, this incredible sharing economy that we have, right. I mean, the, the whole, after the, you know, 2004 sharing nicely paper that really revolutionized the idea of how sharing economy economics can can impact the the broader whole obviously short term rentals are one of those it's a, it's it's a big one of those and so a lot of people have entered 
this market. They've they've put homes onto this market. There's there's been this increase in supply. Now you again have this interesting asymmetry where um, it's a case by case basis for different urban environments. Atlanta's supply has declined ironically ever since the passing of the legislation in March of, of 2021 around the short-term rental ordinance. But really what we are starting to see in the beginning, all you had to do was put a property on the platform and you would get renters. Yep. And 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 there was there was juice. There was juice for the squeeze, if you will. And what we are really seeing is that that it, those days are gone. Mm-hmm. Those days are really gone. And the value of you doing this as a side gig for five units isn't necessarily anywhere near what it was three years ago. And what that means is that your marginal cost to add another unit relative to your expected return for that marginal cost, right? Proportionally has gone up. Before I just had to put a unit on the market and now I'm getting a certain amount of revenue and my marginal cost relative to the revenue I'll generate is very little. And and now we're seeing it very much change where where that proportion is is much, much greater. And I think that means by definition, what will bubble to the top are going to be the highest level operators that are really eight. And, and that doesn't mean you have to have 200 units under management. I would argue it's much harder to do with 200 units under management. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's a, a whole lot easier to do with five or 10 units than it is to do with 200 units. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. So I think we will certainly start to see kind of the the separation of of the wheat from the chaff, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you, you will you will start to see the separation of the the great providers from kind of the the mediocre. And and what that means, of course, is that we'll start to see some stabilization, because I think we have dealt with unprecedented times of real estate valuation. I think arguably four months ago we thought that inflationary expectations were going to fundamentally change prices and and median sale prices and and median home values. And and that's not what we've seen. It really is that this 6.5 million, you know, home shortage that we've got across the country that really started in the great recession is substantial. It's absolutely substantial. And we have to come together you know, one of my big pitches in the regulatory process was actually to create a formalized mechanism between affordable housing and increasing density with the short-term rental market. It's sad to me that we haven't figured out how to do this on a larger scale because you could not, in my mind, find a more symbiotic relationship. The impact of bringing people into any market, but we can talk about urban centers and in having those people spend disproportionately more than than residents and what they do to local business. It's amazing to have yep. people coming to cities and we should figure out a way to create a direct linkage and mechanism between the tax revenues that are generated with affordable housing and density, which in my mind is is a continued stressor and breaking point. So that's something that I think 
there's going to be uh, continued shortages and, and continued price appreciation um, until we're able to solve that. Well, I can't disagree with anything you said. I, I do think I'm going to have to have you on again where we not talk about minty living this time and talk about I just what's going on in the broader industry, uh, housing market regulation. Like I, I feel like we could easily have a hour long conversation just about that. And then I get, I get to ask you more questions. <laughs> I want to ask you about some of these incredibly large and tectonic shifts that we think going on and that we see going on. And candidly, I, I, I don't think there's a lot of data excitable people to get together and have these conversations. And so in my mind, that would be something that I, I'm sure your viewers would love to hear is you know, really diving into some of the nuance around these directions and shifts and kind of, you know, idiosyncratic ebbs and flows that are going on, but nonetheless, they're impacting the same underlying asset or the same underlying demand channel. Yep. We'll, we'll go ahead and schedule it for the back half of the summer. <laughs> Deal. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Can, can you let viewers know where to find you, where to find Minty Living? Sure. Uh, absolutely. Minty Living. And, and uh, we didn't know at the time, but there are a couple names that have mint in it. Damn it. Um, <laughs> watch. We are mintyliving.com. And, um, you know, the go to the about us and, and I'm on there. I'm trying to think on Twitter or social channels. There's no reason to follow me. I'm just spending all my time running a company. <laughs> well, great. Thanks again for joining. Thank you, Jamie, for having me.